Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Your Ben Jarofsky show for this Thursday, November 30th starts now. On today's show, Ben welcomes back the return of Ace Attorney, Jim Coogan. The Ben Jarofsky Show is a presentation of the Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago. You want to know what to do, where to go, what to eat, what to drink, what kind of movies you want to see this week in the theater? You might want to check out ChicagoReader.com. And if you want more Ben Jarofsky after the show's over, head to ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's J O R A. B is in victory, S-K-Y. <laughs> Hello again, everybody. Ben Drewski here. We're calling this Everybody That's Anybody Thursday, and here's why. Everybody That's Anybody is a quote from uh, Ed Burke. The ongoing Ed Burke trial uh, is one of just, I am so fascinated by this trial, uh, <laughs> and it's just so revealing about the way things are done in the city of Chicago and just the way, just the kind of like the corruption. And yes, I'm using that word. My distinguished guest, Jim Coogan, will rule as though he's the judge on whether I'm allowed to use that word. Will there be a mistrial in this podcast for me calling Ed Burke's behavior corrupt? Judge Jim Coogan will weigh in on that decision in a little while. Um, I'm sorry, folks. You got to laugh. I mean, this is going to tie uh, Jim Coogan comes on to talk about Donald Trump's various uh, legal issues. Uh, but there's some obvious parallels between Ed Burke, a former alderman of the 14th Ward, who's on trial for corruption in Chicago and Donald Trump, who's got four kind of one, two, three, four cases uh, pending against him at the very moment. That's the man the Republicans want to uh, nominate. Uh, as her candidate to run against Joe Biden. Heck of a job, uh, Republicans, on that one. Uh, but there's some very obvious, uh, there's some just obvious parallels. Uh, number one, well, it's not a parallel. I just want to point out that uh, Ed Burke was Donald Trump's uh, lawyer here in, in Chicago. So, there's a, so here's the notion. You come to Chicago, you want to build a tower, you're Donald Trump. You want to pay the least amount of money you can in property taxes, which means everybody else's property taxes will go up because that's how it works. The less Donald Trump pays in property taxes, the more Ben Jarofsky pays in property taxes. And every other sucker who lives in the city of Chicago, I'd say Jim Coogan as well, but he doesn't live in the city of Chicago, so he's exempt. Although he lives in the county of Cook, so he's not really. So the more Jim Coogan pays in property taxes, okay? Thank you, Ed Burke. Ed Burke represented Donald Trump, got his tax bill lowered. As a result, my tax bill went up. 
Thank you, thank you Ed Berg. So he has his property tax appeal uh, business uh, that he's operating while he's the most powerful alderman in the city council, head of the finance committee, overseeing the administration of millions and millions and millions of dollars of gift contracts, budgets, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, there is a developer, okay, he's, who wants to uh, redevelop the old post office. Uh, and the problem is, is that uh, he's having trouble with Amtrak and Amtrak controls, owns the property underneath the post office where the trains go through. And he's having trouble with the Amtrak bureaucracy. So Ed Burke says, no problem. I will call someone at Amtrak and I know this person. We made this person's daughter a judge. How about that, ladies and gentlemen? We, I'm just telling you what Ed Burke said, people. Don't get mad at me. We made his daughter a judge here in Cook County. All right. That's what Ed Burke said on tape recording that Danny Solis got. All right. Uh, and uh, here's what he else he said. You'll find out that Chicago is a very small town. Everybody that's anybody knows one another. <laughs> and so the prosecutor asked the, 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 the witness who was from Amtrak on the stand, well, well, how would you categorize that? And the witness said the obvious answer which is the only answer that any logical person would give, in my humble opinion, that is a very corrupt practice. Immediately, Ed Burke's lawyer jumped out of his seat. I move for a mistrial, Your Honor. <gasps> We're shocked. Someone said that a corrupt practice is a corrupt practice. The judge asked the lawyers, the prosecutor, and, the def and, and Burke's def defense lawyers to, issue, to write their little briefs. You know, waste their time writing briefs. And then she finally ruled. Uh, they, they, were, they wanted a mistrial, and the judge ruled against the mistrial, so the case will continue. So now I bring on ace attorney, uh, Jim Coogan, dear friend of this show, who comes on once a month or so to explain Trump's behavior and all the lawsuits against Trump. So first, welcome back, Cotter, Jim Coogan. Benny J. It's great I, to see you. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yes. And now... Now we got that out of the way. No ducking, no dodging. Okay, no dancing around. No J.B. Pritzker uh, maneuvers on the dance floor here. Is that statement by that witness worthy of a mistrial in your humble opinion, Jim Coogan? Well, I, this is not intended to be a duck or a dodge, but I'm waiting for the cash register to ring. Uh, I'm. <laughs> this is just a quote from the Danny Solis tapes that the jury heard that apparently was one of yes. Burke's comments in relation to whether or not uh, he could start helping the parties involved in this. Uh, look, you know, mistrials are obviously, or a ruling to grant a mistrial is obviously a, an enormous ruling in any criminal case. It can create problems for the prosecution because in the United States, you are protected from uh, exposure to double jeopardy. So when when a case has begun and, and there's been uh, exposure to jeopardy on the merits, uh, if a mistrial is granted in certain circumstances, it also could mean the end of all the entire prosecution. Now that may not be the case here. I, I'm not I'm not suggesting that that would have been part of this ruling, but just another point to put in context how significant these kinds of things could be in this in certain circumstances where a mistrial might be granted or. You know, if a mistrial is granted, it also could lead to the prosecution deciding not to try the case again because all the resources have already been devoted to one case. And can you justify doing it again? It depends on what your ultimate goals are. It depends on the political process involved. It depends on the um, mm -hmm. 
the the policy and the intentions of the prosecutor's office. But in and of itself, I don't think this would rise to the level of something that is so prejudicial as to require a mistrial. The purpose of 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 a judge or one of the judge's primary purposes in a trial is they are the gatekeeper of what evidence a jury hears. So in criminal trials where the the defendant has not waived their right to a jury trial, that means that the jury is the one who will decide their fate, but the judge still has that role. They decide what evidence comes in. Some things are inadmissible because they're so inflammatory and prejudicial. You've already talked about in prior episodes of your show and the Chicago public is right about how other issues that arose in these Danny Solis recordings have been the subject of a lot of pretrial motions. Should the jury hear about some of the comments about Jewish people that, that uh, Alderman Burke had or former Alderman Burke had. So the judge's role is to decide what should or shouldn't come in. And then when things do come in on the spot from the mouths of uncontrollable witnesses, then of course you have these dramatic moments where as lawyers will often refer to it, uh, the bell is rung and it's difficult to unring a bell. You know, you can't unring the bell, your honor, you know, you got to stop them from talking about this. All the, there are situations where lawyers can control some of this stuff. And it's actually referred to in the commentary that was reported here where judge Kendall actually said to the prosecutors, well, what did you expect this guy to say? (laughs) Because (laughs) yeah, as, as is obvious, I mean, he is a prosecution witness. So they have some general idea of what their witnesses are going to say. They go through a preparation process with them. They talk about their testimony. They tell them, this is what we're going to ask you about. They walk them through what's going to happen because it's their obligation to rehearse it beforehand. That's, that's, that's not unexpected. That is the expectation is that they've gone over this stuff. So much of it should not be a surprise to the lawyer who's offering that evidence and putting that witness on the stand and asking him that question. All right. The way it's referred to here, when she asks him a second time, well, what do you, when you say Chicago way of doing business, what do you mean by that? What could she, what could the prosecutor possibly have expected? But that still doesn't mean that it warrants a mistrial because a mistrial is a dismissal of the entire trial. And if they're allowed to go prosecute the case again, you got to go through the whole process of picking a new jury too. All right. So let me just try to apply some common sense thoughts uh, to this situation. Uh, and I'm offering this up just one more time. I'm not a lawyer. I never went to law school. Uh, on the other hand, I've read a lot of <laughs> books and novels about uh, lawyers and watched, as Jim knows, many TV shows. I'm fascinated by the law and lawyers. Probably should have been a lawyer, but I was such a bad test taker, Jim. I don't know. If, I don't know if I could have got past the bar. All right, neither here nor there. Um, so, I will now read to you the lead. Uh, in the Sun-Times story, okay? And this is the lead, and the lead goes, the federal judge presiding over Alderman Burke's corruption trial. I will repeat that. The federal judge presiding over ex-Alderman, excuse me, Edward M. Burke's corruption trial is considering whether to grant a mistrial after a federal prosecutor uh, elicit a comment from a witness about Chicago's way of doing business being very corrupt. It's a corruption trial. <laughs> Hello. Why? Why should that be shocking or prejudicial 
to a jury to hear a witness call Ed Burke's practice corrupt in a trial on corruption charges. I feel that there is a tendency on the part of judges to bend over backwards to give special privileges to rich, powerful politicians, generally white men, in matters like this. And this is the parallel I see between Ed Burke, where the late the judge asks for in a corruption trial, Jim. I must consider whether it is so damaging to and prejudicial to Ed Burke that you called what he did corrupt, even though this is a corruption trial. I'm I feel as though the judge is going too far in deference to Ed Burke, the way, as we'll discuss later, judges are going too far in deference to Donald Trump. What's your thoughts? Well, the mistrial wasn't granted. That's correct. Which would be an extraordinary amount of deference in his favor. Um, I, I think it's, you know, this is the back and forth that we are observing in the Trump cases as well. I don't know where you draw the line between doing favors for or being deferential in a way that is untoward or just or or beyond what a careful judge should do because of who the defendant is, where you draw the line between that and protecting a verdict that convicts that defendant. So when judges seem to be bending over backwards in deference to and allowing all sorts of seemingly frivolous and bizarre uh, motions and briefs from Trump lawyers in his civil case and in his criminal cases, or in this situation, one consideration that those judges have is, is not, I, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt that it's not driven exclusively by the fact that it's a high profile case, that there's a lot of attention being paid to it, but also because they know there's going to be an appeal. And when you can show that there was no error, that we considered every argument, that the defense was allowed to raise any arguments that they had that were valid and had a legal basis, that the defense was allowed to introduce any evidence that had a foundation, that protects that verdict from being overturned on appeal. Okay. So I know how that can look, and it mm-hmm. can be extremely frustrating, especially because of the dynamic that you're identifying, that it looks like it's powerful people who've always ex- exercised a disproportionate amount of power compared to your average citizen because of their connections and their wealth. However, if we're going to make these things stick, you know, this is the mentality of the the judicial system and the prosecutor's side where even there, they, you know, they'll fight these things to the extent that they should, but they don't want to have some sort of ineffective assistance of counsel on the defense side. That doesn't do them any good because that could render a verdict uh, overturned and lead to a per- conviction being unraveled. So, you know, it's one of those situations where my advice is like swallow hard, <laughs> recognize that these yeah. are, and not just powerful people with connections inside the system, but, but they have power that is derived, well, Trump more than Burke at this point, but Trump that is or power that is derived from their political support in the country. Loud, angry, especially now this vitriolically angry group that's still dead-ending support for him 
they are cognizant of that, mm-hmm. that any ruling that is made, any conviction that's entered against a guy like this has to be ironclad. Now, is it fair? Is it really re- like, should it be that way? I think that's a different debate because obviously that goes to the merits of, of how you administer a justice system in the first place. But at the end of the day, no justice system can survive if it is not, uh, if it is not self-supporting and if it's exposing itself to attack that could be, that has any basis at all, when the people who are attacking it will attack it without a basis. So you don't want to give them anything legitimate to say, and to say that this was not real, this shouldn't be administered, the guy shouldn't be put in jail, the criminal conviction is void, because as we're going to get to in this conversation, in talking about the gag order and some of the other way the Trump cases are being administered, that's really what this is about. The whole, the entire defense at this point is an attack on the very notion of having an American criminal and civil justice system. So fair or not, the system has this additional burden of trying to protect itself by being as legit as by the board and buttoned up as it possibly can. Wow. Uh, this And that is uh, a great riff. Uh, you've convinced me more or less. Uh, and uh, I will say this. Uh, the advantage and the privilege that a Donald Trump or Ed Burke have in these proceedings over just an ordinary citizen that you alluded to, Billy Bob uh, from Park Ridge, let's say, the advantage that Donald Trump or Ed Burke have is the advantage of wealth because the judge knows that Burke and Trump have the resources to file an appeal. And in each case, their money that will be used to pay for that appeal will have come from donations from their supporters. Ed Burke, we've talked about this with Adolfo Mondragon, election lawyer extraordinaire who tried to uh, blow up this system and lost essentially. Uh, Ed Burke gets to spend uh, the campaign money he raised down through the years. This is all powerful 14th ward democratic powerhouse finance chair maker of judges just let's pause and think about that maker of judges uh he has all all, all millions of dollars that he can spend on um appeals so judge kendall the the judge in his case knows that she will be scrutinized by an appeal so she has to recognize that it's very real like billy bob from park ridge won't have the resources so if Billy Bob is convicted and is in jail. What he'll be writing his own appeals, Jim. I forget what the legal term is for that. I know you know it, and uh, he will file his own appeals, handwritten appeals, uh, which probably will get him nowhere. Whereas uh, Ed Burke will have the resources to pay for the finest appellate lawyers in uh, Cook County, and they'll come up with all this cockamamie, high fashion you know, highfalutin, I should say, legal jargon to explain why uh, it's uh, prejudicial to call a a practice that's on trial for corruption a corrupt practice. Uh, And we'll have to take it serious. And similarly, Donald Trump raises, we talked about how many millions from the suckers and saps and MAGA who just throw money at him every time uh, he's uh, indicted or it comes before a judge. So, Yes, I think it's unfair. The unfairness is baked into it. Do you agree with me on that point? Well, 
Yeah, because the access and yeah, folks to to use the Latin pro se is what you were referring to. There, there's no question. No lawyer would ever tell you that you have a higher chance of succeeding on an appeal when you're representing yourself pro se, as compared to whether you have an experienced, seasoned appellate attorney who oftentimes are people who used to work as clerks for appellate judges. So they know the kinds of arguments that resonate. They know how to speak the language that those clerks speak because they were one of them. And those are the people who do the research and the drafting for these judges. Of course, the judges are the ones who ultimately make the decisions and stand behind them. And their name is attached to every decision in the Illinois appellate courts, the federal appellate courts, the Supreme courts. But those are the people that Ed Burke would have the access to hire because of his financial resources. And it is really interesting if you stop and think about the fact that the purpose of a political corruption trial is to prosecute someone in the criminal courts for the abuse of their office, which was the vehicle that was also the source of the funding, which was intended to allow Ed Burke to run re-election campaigns. But because of that aspect of Illinois law that, that Adolfo brought all the way to the Illinois Supreme Court and, and in some ways succeeded. He didn't win on that particular case, but I think it's important. He explained the distinction in a, in yeah. a show you guys did not too long ago, which was important, but it's still, you know, if that money is in a coffer and Burke turns it over to himself, he can still use it because he has control over it. So ultimately in some ways it's a distinction without a difference, but that is just the ultimate irony that it is the electorate or presumably people who are in his ward or at least Illinois political donors gave him this money. Mm. And now we, as the taxpayers are the ones prosecuting him, but he's using those funds to hire very well qualified defense attorneys to fight this case in the trial court. And then he will subsequently do the same thing on appeal. If the jury decides to convict him, um, that is actually just a, a, a really crazy thing. If you stop and think about that setup, Here's a guy at the top, and we're we're like funding both sides of this thing in yes, some ways. We are. <laughs> uh just to just to have a big fight over yeah. whether he spends time in a jail cell or not, yeah. or a prison cell. Absolutely. Well put. Uh all right, let's move on to uh to Donald Trump and the gag orders it was um just a fascinating uh I mean it, it, the issue at play here, and I read uh just before we went on the air, I read the uh, Washington Post story about the questions being uh, that, that appellate judges were peppering prosecutors and Trump's lawyers with on whether a gag order is constitutional in the case of uh, Donald Trump. And now that was in the trial having to do with Jack Smith. Uh, I mean, God, there's so many trials, it's hard to keep track of, Jim. But uh, Jack Smith, the special prosecutor, uh, and the uh, trial against Donald Trump uh, for inciting an insurrection uh, and uh, so Jack Smith has moved to have a gag order of some sorts put on. Uh, and he got a partial victory from the judge in, in in Washington on that matter. There's also the instant case of the gag order against Trump in his business fraud trial uh, in New York, which is maybe more outlandish in some ways than the issues at play uh, in the Jack Smith case. So why don't you just explain to folks what's going on? You could start with the business trial uh, if you want. Uh, and talk about the issues at stake there. Well, I guess I have breaking news this time because as I was reading about this in the beginning of this show, this is from this afternoon that they reinstated the gag order in the civil trial. So oh, wow. that had been stayed 
pending appeal because so so ultimately the reason why these are controversial is as everybody could probably appreciate is any kind of a and I actually do hate the term gag order but a limiting order that puts restrictions on the defendant's ability to express themselves who they can talk about and how they can say things um is a restraint on speech so it raises obvious first amendment questions because the purpose of the First Amendment is to restrict the government's ability to stop you as an individual citizen from speaking, but it is not without qualification. It's not, it's not that the government can never put any restrictions on speech whatsoever. You can't incite violence directly. That's still prosecutable crime. And then in the context of a criminal defendant in the course of a case, this has been settled law for 50 years that courts are allowed to put restraints on what a defendant can say and who they can say it to and how they can say it, as long as those restraints are within reason and based upon some actual threat or some actual consideration that's relative to the case. Here, it doesn't take a lot of thought to realize that you've got someone with an enormous microphone and who generally does not consider or have a lot of restraint on the things that he says. Donald Trump uh, texts, tweets, speaks from the hip constantly. Um, and I, you know, we've, we've tried to delve into the dark world of the psychology of Donald Trump before between the two of us, Ben, and, and I, and I do this occasionally, but it's a scary place. Who knows how much of this is from the hip or if it's designed to look like it's shooting from the hip and he's really some kind of a secret genius or something. I don't know. I don't really think that's the word for it, but um, his style in defending himself just in the civil case for the moment has been the way he's defended himself from everything all the way across the board since he started running as a politician. He does it in the public sphere. He wants to argue about everything and make everything a political issue because he knows that's the place where he has some popularity and some power. And in the civil case, he's already been ruled to have committed civil fraud. So his lawyers have, I think, incorrectly, in my opinion, mischaracterized and been dishonest about, or they don't, maybe they don't understand when they make these public statements and claimed things like, well, Judge Engeron has prejudged this case, or he wouldn't even allow us to present our defenses because he was, he already made his, yeah, he made his decision. They're called motions for summary judgment. We, <laughs> we discussed that in a show on this, on this show. Uh, because there's a legal process to ask for decisions to be made before trial. And if they're so clear cut, a judge can rule on them in advance so that the issue isn't necessary to be determined during the trial. And oh, by the way, it's a bench trial. So all the decisions were going to be made by the judge. So if he'd already decided that the evidence, including the defense's counter arguments and all evidence that they might have, proved that Donald Trump had already committed fraud in his business, then that's okay. Because that's how it works. Yeah. So Trump has taken that and decided to do the only thing he knows how to do in this situation, which is bring it to the public sphere, scream and yell about unfairness, and then do this really strange and I think creepy thing that he's doing here, which is point the finger at the judge's clerk, implying that there's some impropriety with a clerk working for a judge or a clerk assisting a judge or the fact that the clerk sits next to a judge or the fact that the clerk is a female or the fact that she also has political opinions of her own, all of which are just the way things are. It, you know, the last, 
seven years of political observation in this country, we've been like through some kind of looking glass where things that are just normal things are constantly being reexamined for illegitimate reasons as if somehow they're wrong. And it's, it's like a bunch of uh, what's the right word? Like political tourists show up and, and try to make some observation like, well, gee, why does this thing, you know, this doesn't seem right that it's the way that it is. And if you just bother to do any investigation research or talk to the people who do whatever that thing is, whether it's budgetary process or regulatory action or, or legal things, it's just the way things are. And then there end up being all kinds of reasons why they are the way that they are, if you wanted to actually think about it. So in the court system, judges have clerks. They are only one person, and yet they have busy dockets. They outsource some of their work, just like lawyers do, just like politicians do, just like a businessman like Donald Trump would, hires people to assist him. And so throughout this whole thing, they've, they've created this bizarre uh, alternative universe thing where somehow this, this clerk is a, a friend or a, or a romantic friend of, of, of Chuck Schumer, the senator from New York, and that means that this judge has it out for Trump and they shouldn't be talking. His Trump's lawyer has all these baseless, preposterous complaints about the judge and the uh, uh, clerk looking at each other while she's doing her cross-examination or just because her examination is falling flat. She's looking for something to blame because it's just ineffective questioning is more likely the case. So the primary purpose of the gag order was to stop Trump from talking about this clerk. According to evidence that was demonstrated in support of the gag order, she's received thousands of email, text, and calls threatening her, I think, anti-Semitic comments, you know, horrible, violent threats that were directed at her. And more importantly, to bring, because, you know, the defendant in that case and Trump has argued hey, wait a minute, I'm not making these threats. I didn't direct any of these people to do it. But the evidence also supported the notion that those threats increased in volume every time Trump brought this up on his irresponsibly and hilariously named Truth Social <laughs> uh, social media platform. Yeah. <laughs> so when he screams something from the bullhorn, all of the acolytes respond and do horrible things. So he may not be directing those people to do it, but there is a cause and effect. And that was the purpose of the gag order. And, and honestly, this is another example of Judge Angeron exercising a great deal of restraint and more than anything else, trying to protect his staff, recognizing that he's going to continue to get threats of his own. And, it's, and, and I don't think the gag order includes stopping from complaining about the judge which frankly, I think it would be justifiable to, to restrict him from doing that. So he's also bending over backwards, but again, for the same reasons that I think he's doing this uh, or that I've said earlier is, is what he's trying to do here to protect the legitimacy and say, I did everything I possibly could to give this defendant a fair shake. So whatever happened, the rulings that I made were not the product of bias and he got all of the due process fairness that he was entitled to. And according to what I'm reading here, uh, the temporarily lifted order has now been put into place. But I do want to mention, I know I'm kind of going on a long rant here, but here's the bigger problem with all this stuff, Ben. Mm -hmm. The fact that this is a legitimate gag order that should be in place, 
by any objective measure, Donald Trump should be restricted from making baseless, preposterous, mean, nasty, and inflammatory comments about a, a judicial staff member. Mm-hmm. So that is legit. And it should have been reinstated. So this is all correct and proper. Even if it's working correctly, and let's say he says something else, then the triggering mechanism means that he will be penalized in some fashion and fined again. It still gives him the chance to scream and yell about how unfair it is. Mm-hmm. It still gets you and I talking about it. And the tremendously frustrating reality of the Trump era of politics in this country, which is, I know I wasn't alive for lots of other eras, but I, it's got to be up there as one of the stupidest eras of American <laughs> politics. Yeah. But predominantly because we have to, you know, people who have good intentions of trying to solve problems or think through serious issues have to spend so much time talking about this clown. It's it's and, and these are not real issues. He did commit fraud. It's done. It's a question of how much, and a question of how much the penalty might be. Mm-hmm. And yet, because of the threat that it promote, promotes to the system itself, the way that it does put the justice system on the defensive, it needs to be discussed. So you lose either way if you look at it as, well, he's forcing us to defend something, but you can't just lay down and not defend it. And then it's given him a platform to scream and yell that it, the things were unfair, regardless of whether they were ever objectively unfair. And so here we are. But I guess it gives us something to talk about for the show. Well, uh, we could talk about a lot of things if Donald Trump wasn't here. This is, I would love that, but you know, here we are. System, yeah. <laughs> Plenty to talk about when it comes to criminal justice in America, courts and legal affairs, uh, if Donald Trump were around. Uh, I, mean, I just want to correct you, something you said, push back a little bit. What you went on was not a rant. It was a riff. Uh, and uh, I, there's, it's, a fine, it's not even a fine distinction. It's pretty obvious. I do rants. I open the show with rants. I get emotional. I get right my, throw my hands in the air. Uh, my guests generally uh, are very dispassionate, uh, and they go on riffs. And I love riffs. I love guitar well, riffs. I do get passionate about the justice system. And I, it's not just because I'm a lawyer. It's because doing this, look, if we didn't have a justice system, we'd still be settling these disputes with duels. Yes. You know, or or beating each other with clubs in the streets, right? Like, it, this is a higher expression of values of, of the Enlightenment and realizing that it's safer and leads to a more just and stable society if we can have a, an actual legal structure where you get due process and you have rules of evidence and you have judges that ideally are less biased but it requires constant maintenance and right now it's under as serious a threat as i've ever observed absolutely and it's, uh, when you said that i just had to give a shout out to a uh, a dear friend of my family's who died several years ago uh, alan reinstein was his name he was a lawyer uh, and he uh, counseled me many times on law. Uh, Jim, I may have told you this before. He was the one who told me, he called me Benny. He goes, Benny, you know, if we didn't have lawyers, there'd be people fighting in the streets. And that's, he was always talking about that. The courtroom is where you go to avoid violent resolutions uh, to disputes. And uh, he said he, he had a tremendous respect uh, for it. And uh, clearly uh, Donald Trump has no respect for it. Uh, and the political reality, at the, at the well, it more so in uh, Trump's case than Burke's case. The political reality is the reason Trump is such a threat uh, to our system is because, uh, roughly, 
and Monroe and, and it haggles with me over the number, 40 <laughs> to 45 percent of uh, America supports him. So I, I, I don't I'll go with Monroe's lower number. Sometimes he goes as low as 33 percent, whatever. It, the, the point is, it's a scarily high proportion of America that is supporting him regardless of what he does. Uh, and uh, it's to me, it's a very frightening thing. And I, I look to this is I don't want to go down a political thing. I just want to stick to legal stuff. But I'm looking, I'm watching that Republican primary with some hope that somebody other than Donald Trump will emerge uh, as the candidate for Republicans. I, there is no chance that I'm going to vote for a Republican uh, in the 2024 election. But Trump is such a danger to our country and Trumpism is such a danger to our democracy uh, that I would love to be, I would love for Monroe to be proved correct. And that the hmm. threshold of people who support Trump is much lower than it is. Uh, all right. Uh, so that's the issue with the gag order. Uh, then there's um, the matter of <laughs> the case in Florida, which we haven't talked about in a while, uh, where Trump, this one is so bizarre where he took the, the, um, the government documents that he wasn't supposed to disclose, he wasn't supposed to take, he hoarded them uh, in his uh, at Mar-a-Lago, and then he resisted efforts by the feds to recover uh, the documents, and then he ordered his uh, his uh, the people who worked for him to what move boxes around so that the uh, the feds couldn't find them. It's so bizarre because I don't understand his impulse uh, to keep these documents unless it's just to shake down the government to, to get him back. Uh, so you pointed something out that he's getting more favorable rulings from the judge in that case uh, in terms of scheduling. Take it away. Explain what's going on. What's the latest uh, in the document case? Yeah. So the complication here is because there are so many different simultaneous prosecutions happening in different jurisdictions, uh, and three of them are federal, excuse me, there's, there's a federal case in Washington, DC, there's a state-based case in Georgia, and then you've just identified this, this other case in Florida is a federal case also brought by the Smith prosecution team, the special prosecutors group. The question is, when do those trials happen? And in the course of pre-trial negotiation and motions in the Mar-a-Lago documents case, the Trump group has attempted to delay that case. One of the arguments that they made was that they weren't being given access to the documents, which is stop and think about that for just a second. <laughs> um, what I just said, um, it, it is an obligation of the prosecutor to turn over any evidence that they have that they will use at trial as well as any uh, exonerating evidence, anything that could arguably be, used by the defense. That's an old constitutional principle expressed in the Brady case. They call it Brady material. If the prosecutors have everything, anything they have that could help the prosecutors or could help the defense, they have to turn it over in what they call discovery. So another complication is that these are documents that have security cl classifications attached to them. So where they can be reviewed, who can review them, and therefore, when that can be accommodated is an issue. It's a it's a logistical complication. His lawyers needed to get security clearances. They can only view the documents in certain locations. The listeners might recall the hilarious proposal from his lawyers that they should have made a special secured information facility 
at Mar-a-Lago for him to review the documents with his attorneys. Again, the very place where the alleged crime was committed, including, as we always sort of, you know, human beings, especially in America, like to say, the cover-up being worse than the crime itself, that if he had just turned the things over in the earlier stages of this, when the National Archives asked for these documents, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. And yet, for whatever reason, not only to decide not to rebuff their attempts, he falsely turned over things and then claimed that he'd turned it all over. And now, and of course, as we talked about, there's evidence of other people taking direction from him to scurry around in the night and move these things around. And there's pictures of them stacked up in bathrooms. Mm. So the question is, when can these trials happen? And the argument from any defendant would be that they should be entitled to have these these trials at different times so that their attorneys can prepare the defendant so the defendant can actually be available to be in court. Um, just again, stop and think about that. Your argument is I'm being prosecuted in so many places. Please give me the opportunity to, to <laughs> arrive and attend all my trials uh, and not have to be on a like overnight flight back and forth from one court to the other. So the, the issue here is whether or not uh, Judge Cannon, who, again, this is another unfortunate, um, strange twist to the entire process, is after Donald Trump lost the 2020 election and was what you might refer to as a lame duck president, he actually didn't appoint Eileen Cannon to this district in Florida until sometime in January, I think, which is just a weird sort of aside to this story. But she is a federal judge appointed by Trump and approved and, and confirmed by the Senate. and. That's who the Mar-a-Lago documents case got assigned to. So she's presiding over the case. Previously, she was scolded by the 11th Circuit, the 11th Federal Appeals Circuit, for her attempts to inject herself into the process of a subpoena and, this, and, and a warrant for these documents. That was the whole special master fiasco. Now, it's a question of whether the trial could be delayed or when it will happen. And seemingly... The refusal to move the trial from, I think it was going to happen in May of 2024, was intended to help the Trump people because that would mean that no other prosecutor could, tr could schedule a trial at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so the next question is, well, somewhere down the line, maybe in January, February, March, they could still come back and ask to get that trial reset again if, for example, they could prove to her that there's still some issue with reviewing the evidence or the defense could, could make some argument that there's some other reason why they're not prepared for trial. And now you've boxed out a May date. Other prosecutors wouldn't have been preparing for that May date, but then Cannon could possibly decide to move the documents trial to some other date, hint, hint, wink, wink, after the 2024 election, which again, this particular defendant seems to believe that one of his most potentially effective strategies to defend himself in these federal cases is to get reelected as president of the United States and improperly, and I would say corruptly, exercise the powers of the presidency to eliminate prosecutions of himself. Mm -hmm. You know, call it a prophylactic pardon. I don't know what he would refer to it as. I'm not sure how it works legally, other than obviously he would have control over who the attorney general is. 
in a in a better world, maybe the Senate is would refuse to appoint, you know, confirm somebody. I don't think we're ever going to get to that point. I really hope that this country is not going to subject themselves to such a preposterous legal entanglement as to reelect them in the first place. But in the moment, right now, in November of twenty three, this keeps that option on the table in a way that complicates the other prosecutions at the same time. Yeah. And uh, it sure looks like it's uh, an attempt to give uh, Trump an advantage, uh, whether it is or it isn't. And, and curiously enough, I am have it's just sarcastic use of the word curiously. Uh, Donald Trump has uh, resisted any efforts to uh, denounce Judge Cannon uh, on his, uh, his various social media feeds. So yeah, this is, uh, I do believe that that is Trump's strategy ultimately, uh, to get reelected, uh, and to pardon himself in all federal cases, which makes the Georgia case, cause it's a state case. He can't pardon himself the most threatening to Donald Trump. Uh, and all along I have, at the risk of being viewed as naive, have insisted that I do not believe, uh, even with our insane electoral college system, the uh, this country will uh, reelect uh, Donald Trump, uh, given all these cases against him. I believe that, let's say Trump is the nominee, that the Republicans go through on their madness, Jim, and, and not nominate Donald Trump, uh, as the polls suggest. Uh, and uh, I believe that once August and uh, September and October come around and we have the situation where Donald Trump is both a defendant in trials across the country uh, and a candidate uh, for president and the cases laid against him. Yes, I understand 40 percent or whatever. Monroe's 30 percent or whatever the number is will follow him off a cliff. But I got to believe <laughs> that the rest of the country will not. Well, consider voters. something you just yeah. brought up there. Here's the other problem, though. This is actually a problem for defendant Trump. If the if this this trial date is still presently on the books, yeah, that would mean that in that Georgia prosecution, they can aim for a, I don't know, August trial date. So now he's in the middle of a three or four month RICO trial while he's campaigning, because irresponsibly and preposterously, the GOP gave him the nomination again. And he's their nominee for president. And now that trial's starting where, oh, by the way, like several of their brightest lights will be testifying as either cooperating witnesses or co-defendants in that RICO case in Georgia. So, you know, whether this was designed to help him, uh, it's it's a little bit unclear. You know, I can't really read the judge's mind, but it may not have. So even if that was the intention, it, it may not help because that case is not going away. And there have already been guilty pleas that have been entered. And potentially there's, there's a whole host of people who are in deep legal trouble because of the evidence that's, that we can tell is coming out or that we know already exists. Well, that's a perfect transition into the final topic. Uh, And you talk about the testimony uh, that will be uh, unleashed in Georgia and in, in Washington uh, about some of the Trump's by some of Trump's former allies. And the article you sent me about Mike Pence, uh, Trump's former vice president, is particularly uh, wow illuminating. 
And I had missed this article until you sent it to me. Uh, and the uh, former vice president, Mike Pence, who was uh, just recently, up until recently, was a candidate running against Trump. And then he finally had to bow out because MAGA was so, had turned so much against him, uh, is ready, it seems, to offer some very revealing testimony about Donald Trump. Why don't you go into that a little bit, talk about the consequences? Yeah, I- I'm going to forgive you for not having purchased a copy of Mr. Pence's uh, autobiography and his account of what was it called? So help me God or something like that. I think that's actually the title of the book. Yeah. So interestingly, one of the issues that, and, and, and as people may recall, Pence had been requested to discuss his testimony and be subjected to a, a subpoena by the Jack Smith special prosecutors team. He initially resisted that, but eventually came around and he has been talking to them ever since. So I mentioned the book only because there is a specific passage that has come up in references to what Pence has been talking to the Smith team about. There's a sentence in there in the published version of the book that says, quote, you know, comma, I don't think I have the authority to change the outcome of the January of the election on January 6th. So this is Pence relating a comment that he had made talking to former President Trump, pushing back on what Pence could do pursuant to the Electoral Count Act. The Electoral Count Act is a law that was created in the late 1800s because of all kinds of problems with counting electoral college votes in the 19th century uh, that gives the vice president who was presiding at the time uh, more or less official officiating powers to to just preside over the count of the electoral college count in the, the Congress. Trump's people, John Eastman, Kenneth Cheesebro, all these folks had been arguing, even bef- I think that started before the election because they knew what was going to happen. And of course they pretended like they don't afterwards, but they had been advocating for a while that the powers of that act actually allowed the vice president to just reject uh, and they even confessed to the, con- the the conspiracy in their documents that Pence would be allowed to reject electoral votes from states where he could just claim that there was a controversy, even if they knew that there wasn't, mm-hmm. and say, well, I'm going to pick these other electors instead, and therefore that would just reelect Trump. So this is Pence in a conversation where Trump, of course, having been told this by his, we'll we use lawyers in air quotes here, that this is actually a, a reasonable interpretation of the law. He, now he's got this in his head, so he thinks he can get himself reelected. He's screaming and yelling at Mike Pence and calling him names for not being a, a man enough to do this. But Pence has actually clarified. So the passage I just read has a comma after the words, you know. Apparently, Mike Pence has told Jack Smith that he actually said, you know I don't have this authority. Take the comma out. So this will be the, the comma heard around the world if Mike Pence actually testifies in one of these trials. And you have a former vice president testifying against the, the former president of the United States in a criminal conspiracy trial. Um, do you think one of the witnesses might use the word corrupt there, Ben? Anyway, yeah. that's an aside. But he would be maintaining that what he actually said to Trump is, you, Donald Trump, know that I don't have that power. The point being that he's been told that he didn't have that power, even if people were falsely telling him that, he's also been told, look, as a matter of fact, you just don't. 
these folks over here have this cockamamie false interpretation of the law and the constitution, but you, you actually know this. And they had intimate conversations. Uh, As bizarre as it sounds, Pence's comments have also said that his only, uh, his only allegiance and, and uh, fealty that he owned, that he owed, that was greater than Donald Trump was to God and the constitution. Mm -hmm. So he still saw himself as a friend and a supporter of Donald Trump. I assume that that changed the day that Trump exposed him to possibly being executed in public. I, I, you know, he still isn't very declarative when it comes to condemning what Donald Trump did that day, but that's between Mike Pence and his God. Mm. The point is, this is just one piece of what would be a larger puzzle where Pence is, Pence has as much knowledge as anyone. He mm-hmm. hasn't been charged in any of these, any of these conspiracy trials. He hasn't been charged with any crimes related to January 6th. There was a little note little footnote in history that people might remember uh charles grassley the senator from iowa leading up to this january 6th date had tweeted out i think or he publicly made a comment i may be presiding over this the reason apparently is that pence was actually thinking i have to step away from this because i'm so devoted to donald trump i can't hurt my friend good god Mm. i can't hurt my friend by showing up and doing my unavoidable uh, uncontroversial constitutional duty on January 6th mm-hmm. by doing the right thing, which is I can't change the results. I can merely administer and have ministerial powers to say, yes, you guys have counted this, so on and so forth. But that, cha- I mean, so Grassley, <laughs> what did you think was happening behind the scenes? It, that didn't happen. Pence was there and then had to be escorted out of the building and then actually decided not to leave the building because he wasn't sure what was really going to happen with the secret service members that were escorting him that day, which I think we cannot stop reminding ourselves of the darkness and Mm. the murderous intent that some of the parties involved in this conspiracy actually had. Uh, There was no, it's it's not an accident that they were screaming, hang Mike Pence outside the white house or outside the Congress, the day of this administration, the day that this happened on January 6th. So We've got a situation where in this Georgia case, in any of these cases, even if Trump is, or as as Pence has been talking to Jack Smith so far, that doesn't mean that his testimony couldn't be summoned in that case as well, or any of these cases. And it absolutely influences how other defendants may be treated in these cases, Mm. other co-conspirators, because if Pence apparently was not a co-conspirator, but would be willing to testify and they can get things on the record about Trump's state of mind, his confessed state of mind and what he knew he was doing Mm -hmm. as well as the activities of the other co-conspirators, then the prosecutors, either the federal or state prosecutors would be less reliant on the co-conspirators to cut deals and testify against Trump, which inherently is also less predictable. You know, you could cut a deal with them and then suddenly they recant on the stand or they're less cooperative all of a sudden. And now you're the prosecutor standing in front of a jury trying to beat up a, a, a witness with their uh, deferred prosecution agreement, trying to get them to tell the truth when they're now suddenly saying that they can't recall something, yeah. even though you already cut that deal. That damages your prosecution. And that's always a concern of criminal prosecutors when they have witnesses like this who have cut other deals. Yeah. And obviously anybody who cuts a deal is subjected to the cross-examination from Trump's attorneys in any of those cases where he's a defendant to say, well, wait a minute, weren't you all, you've already confessed to a crime, haven't you, sir? And haven't you been given favorable treatment by these prosecutors over here? So 
not having to rely on Mark Meadows or Rudy Giuliani uh, or any of the other lawyers, hangers-on, administration officials, and people outside the administration who are co-conspirators is preferable in the execution of these prosecutions. Absolutely. And by the way, Trump has more than suggested uh, that uh, if he is uh, elected president uh, in November 2024, he will uh, pardon pretty much everybody who uh, is involved. Well, the January 6th insurrectionists themselves Mm -hmm. and presumably uh, those who are under pressure to testify against him. Um, that was a great riff, not rant, a great riff about, uh, Mike Pence and his autobiography and the placement of the comma after, you know, uh, if he put that comma in his autobiography and is now saying, uh, that the comma doesn't belong there and it does radically change the meaning of the sentence. Uh, he is essentially advancing what I call the Charles Barkley defense, so named for the great Charles Barkley, who claimed he was misquoted in his own autobiography, which I always thought was hilarious when Charles Barkley said it. Hey, Pence, you wrote the auto- It's your autobiography. Presumably, you knew what that comma meant. All right, we've run out of time. I've got to rush to the dentist. I'd much rather talk to Jim Coogan about law. Uh, but the dentist is awaiting me before we head out the door, Jim, why don't you tell folks about your own podcast, do a little promotion, take it away. The mic is yours. Thanks, Ben. Um, yeah, so we, we, I have a podcast It is called Coogan knows the law and actually we'll be dropping some new episodes. We took a little hiatus for a couple of weeks there. Um, but probably starting next week, we'll have some new episodes with some new features. Like, uh, I'll have a couple called Coogan knows the law dot, dot, dot can be funny. So we'll look at some unusual cases, some weird cases, and then kind of explain why it still highlights some important features of how the law works in the United States of America and um, some other interviews that I'll be working on in the near future. So check it out wherever the finest podcasts are available, such as the Ben Jarofsky show. Very good. I like that. That was well done. Uh, thank you very much, Jim. I appreciate you coming on the show. Also want to thank producer Chris. He does an outstanding job. I know Jim uh, agrees with me and Ed Burke agrees with me when I say, uh, hey, producer Chris, give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, everybody. And remember, you can always catch up on previous Ben Jarofsky shows, get Benny J bonus interviews, check out those columns written by Ben Jarofsky, and a whole lot more, all at chicagoreader.com. Follow Ben on Instagram at Benny J Show and like and subscribe to The Ben Jarofsky Show on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.